Mark chapter 1 is where we will primarily be spending our time, but we will also flip over a little bit and look at Luke chapter 2. So put your marker also in Luke chapter 4. Did I say 2? Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1. Okay, and then uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. You bow with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that, that as we will again see in our lesson this morning, Jesus Christ is both mighty in his word and in his deed. Thank you that his works, his miracles, authenticated his divine authority and that there is absolutely nothing which is impossible for him. And Father, thank you that he is the great physician who never wearies in bringing us comfort and healing of our souls and our minds and peace when we just lean back and rest in his everlasting arms of grace. Thank you, Father, for a Savior upon whom we can cast all our burdens because he cares for us and he will sustain us. And we ask now that you would bless our time together in your word. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to see once again the majesty and the glory of our wonderful Lord and Savior in whose name we pray. Amen. The miracles of Christ were repeated demonstrations to convince the people of Israel of his equality with God. He is indeed God the Son. To authenticate his claim to being the Messiah of Israel and also to verify his qualification to be the Savior of mankind. Remember, his miracles were always to confirm his message. Jesus himself said in John 10:25, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Well, in addition to the creative miracles that the Lord has already performed in our Life of Christ study, which were turning water into wine, that was a creative miracle, and also the one we looked at last week, which, which was the great catch of fish, in addition to creative miracles, there was another whole area of miracles in the Lord's life, and they were intended to demonstrate his supreme authority over sickness, both in the spiritual and in the physical realms. The authority is, that authority is what we're going to turn to in our lesson this morning, which is our 21st lesson in our Life of Christ study, and it is entitled, what? Deliverance from Demons and Disease. I do not have an outline, I did, a transparency on that, because the outline was so simple. I just thought you could look at your books. We have a two-part outline. First of all, we're going to consider the Lord's fourth specifically recorded miracle in our study. And that was the healing of the Capernaum demoniac. I'm going to look at the Lord's first casting out of a demon as we consider his authority over spiritual sickness. And then secondly, we will look at his authority over physical sickness as we consider how he healed. This is the fifth recorded miracle in our Life of Christ study, how he healed Peter's mother-in-law. So in both of these miracles, we're going to see how he was demonstrating his supreme and absolute authority over both physical and spiritual diseases and afflictions. So let's begin by looking at Mark 1, verses 21 to 28, the Lord's authority over spiritual sickness. And we're going to be discussing demons this morning. All right, Mark 1, 21. It says, and they went into Capernaum. And straightway, on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. And there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, 
saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed insomuch that they questioned among themselves. This is the people sitting in the synagogue that morning. They questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. All right, now if you would look over at Luke's account in chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. I'm not really going to read anything except verse 35 because it's really the only verse that has a little something extra in it. In verse 35, it says, when Jesus rebuked the demon within the man, he said, hold thy peace and come out of him. And then Luke adds this. He says, and when the devil had thrown him in the midst, the, devil, the demon within the man threw him down in the midst of the synagogue, it says he came out of him and hurt him not. So that's just some, a little bit of additional information given to us by Luke. So you can go back to Mark now. After having called Peter... Andrew, James, and John to follow him in full-time service, permanent service, which is what we discussed in our lesson last week. The Lord, with those four men, entered into the synagogue there in Capernaum, which was, of course, his usual custom on the Sabbath day. It was the Sabbath. He would go where? He was setting the example for us. We don't go on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, but rather we go on Sunday. And where should we go? should be our habit and our custom. And because we want to, we want to go to church on Sunday and worship the Lord. So on, uh, as was his custom, he went into the Capernaum Synagogue. Let's see, I really should have this picture up there. Now, once again, we learned that as he had done in Nazareth, Jesus assumed the role of the maftir, who was the teacher for the day, and he began to teach. And by the way, Jesus by far spent more of his time teaching than he did performing miracles. You might get a different idea of that if you kind of just look superficially through the scripture, because a lot of the times we don't actually hear what he taught. But like, for example, in this lesson, he taught in the synagogue on that particular day, but we don't have a record of what he taught. But perhaps he taught for 45 minutes or an hour, or maybe he was long-winded and went on for a couple hours. I don't know. But he taught them that morning. And then when he cast the demon out of the man, it was that only took a couple, a minute or so to do that. So by far he spent more time teaching than he did performing miracles. His emphasis was always on his message and not on his miracles. Is, are we okay? She all right? No? Right now? Her heart? Is she, is she going to drive? Catherine, we don't want you driving alone. I think you better take her. I don't want her going alone. Insist, Terry. Lord, please, please be with Catherine right now. Watch over her. We're talking about 
how you are the great physician. We just pray, Lord, that you would heal her, make the heart stop beating so fast, and take care of her right now. We love her dearly, Lord. Jesus, please put your hands of healing upon her. And we just pray, Lord, that you will get the glory through this. Help us to have the peace and her to have the peace that passes all understanding. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Mm. Mm-mm-mm. All right. Anyway, back to the lesson. This, the, uh, the scripture passage from which he taught, as I said, we, we don't know because it wasn't revealed to us, but we are told that his listeners that morning were amazed about two things, and those two things were his doctrine, what he taught them, his message, and the authority with which he taught his doctrine. First of all, they were astonished at his doctrine. He taught them the scripture in such a way that its precepts and its commandments and its expectations and its principles, everything about what he taught was absolutely logical, very logical and crystal clear to the people. He brought forth the truth of, the, of, of God, the word of God, in a way which no other teacher, no other rabbi, no other scribe had ever been able to do. And why do you think he would be able to teach the word of God with so much greater clarity and and beauty and um, simplicity and unfathomable depth. I can't say that word. I can never say that word. Unfathomable depth than anybody else. Why would that be? Yeah, because he was God and he wrote the word of God. Secondly, they were astonished at his authority. Uh, Mark wrote that they were astonished, it says in verse 22, because he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. While Luke recorded their amazement was um, that his word was with such power. I probably should have read that over in Luke 4.32 as well. They uh, they were amazed that he had such power in his preaching and his teaching. The, The common scribal or rabbinical method of teaching was to continuously quote from the opinions of other people, from men. You know, they would, a scribe would get up, on a Saturday to teach the people, and he would just quote from the writings or the words of um, either living, other living rabbis or ancient rabbis. And then he would compare one man's saying with another man's saying. He'd say, so-and-so said, and then this one said, and here's how you compare this with that. And that's about basically what they did. They never spoke a word of authority that was their own. And their lectures, therefore, were very dull and uninspiring as they monotonously reiterated traditional rabbinical and ceremonial rules and traditions. You know, I I have a problem sometimes with some of you falling asleep during the lessons, but they probably had a lot of problem with that because they just would go over the laws and the rules and the traditions and the people were already heavily yoked and burdened with all these laws and all it did was just add to their heavy, heavy burden. And their leaders were proud. They were very proud of their ability um, to lead their hearers through an endless maze of verbosity using all kinds of flowery words and and memorized quotations and interpretations. However, they virtually had no ability, no power, to move the consciences of the people toward true godliness or to stir up their hearts, you know, to love God more and deeper and to stir up their hearts to love their fellow man. So when the Jewish people of Capernaum 
heard Jesus teach from the word of God, they immediately, you see, realized that his doctrine, in other words, the content of his teaching, was vastly different from that of the scribes and the rabbis who they were so used to hearing. Uh, He didn't quote from any previous authorities, quote-unquote authorities. Rather, he spoke with his own authority, and, and his appeal was directly to the Holy Scripture, not to some mere man's opinion. Where is the power? Is it in some man's opinion on this or that, or is it in the Word of God? It's on the word of God. In the word of God is where the power is. So he didn't refer to, to this rabbi's opinion or quote from this man, etc., or give this interpretation or that interpretation. He spoke, of course, from his own authority and his own interpretation. And do you think his own interpretation was correct? <laughs> yeah, there was no arguing with it. So they experienced, the people experienced his authoritative power Uh, as it spiritually moved their hearts. They were affected as they had never, ever been affected by any man's teaching. His teaching was a wonderful contrast to the dull, burdensome, non-authoritative, powerless teaching, uninspiring teaching, teaching that they habitually heard Sabbath after Sabbath, year after year. But although the Lord spoke with such power and such uh, authority, yet he knew that some of the people, probably especially the synagogue leaders, that they would begin to question his right to speak with such authority. You know, he didn't even say, Moses said this, or thus saith the Lord. He would say, verily, verily, I say unto you. So they would question, what gives him the right to speak with this kind of authority. So before the morning was over, he was going to demonstrate to them that he indeed had the credentials which gave him the right to speak with such a supreme authority regarding the Old Testament scripture. And for that matter, he had the supreme authority to teach anything and everything that he wanted to. You know, on any subject he would speak, he has supreme authority. Does he not? because of who he is as God. So he was going to prove his authority by casting, first of all, this was going to be a busy day. There were several times in the scripture when the Lord had very, very busy days. I don't know if any of you were with us in that last uh, study of the life of Christ that we did when we went over his Passion Week. Does anybody remember that very, very busy day of the Passion Week? Which day it was? Yes, it was Tuesday. Very good. It was Tuesday. Tuesday was a busy. It's incredible when we get there. I mean, I think we spend about a year on Tuesday. <laughs> you can't hardly believe that, but <laughs> he did so many things on, tu- on that Tuesday of the Passion Week. Anyway, this was another very busy day in his life, this Sabbath day. And he, he began the morning, of course, by teaching in the synagogue and then by casting a demon out of a man with just his command, just word from his mouth. And he did so, of course, in full view of all the synagogue attendants. So this was how he would prove his authority to speak um, as he did. Now, by the way, the Lord's exorcism, and you know what it means, the word exorcism? Remember that movie years ago, that horrible movie, The Exorcist? Exorcism is just casting out of a demon the removal of a demon from a person. So this exorcism 
of the demon in the Capernaum synagogue is the first miracle which is given to us in uh, the Gospel of Mark, just in case you were interested in those sort of things. We have not read of any miracles in Mark's account so far, so this is the first one. This is also his first incident of casting, at least the first recorded incident of him casting out a demon from someone. Now, of course, throughout the four Gospels, we will find that the Lord casts demons from many people who had fallen under their wicked control. And in doing this, he was demonstrating not only his supreme authority um, to, to teach whatever he wanted to teach, but he was also demonstrating to Israel that he does indeed have the authority and the power to be the redeemer because he has absolute authority over God's and man's greatest enemy, who is Satan. So he's showing, he, by casting demons out, he's showing he as supreme authority over Satan and all of Satan's realm, the fallen angels. Satan is, you know, <clears throat> according to 1 Corinthians 4, 4, he is the present God of this world, with a small g. It says in 1 John 3, 8, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of who? Of the devil. You know, at his first coming, which is what we're looking at in this study, at his first coming, he released believers, those who would place their faith in him, he released believers from the power of Satan. We don't have to be under the power of Satan. <clears throat> but at his second coming, he will release believers from even the presence of Satan and his realm. <clears throat> now, according to God's words, demons have three main goals, along with, of course, their leader, who is Satan. Those three main goals are to oppose God's purposes and God's plans, also to execute Satan's program, and third, to afflict earth's people. Now, in Mark 1 and in Luke 4, we find, as I said, the first recorded record of Christ exercising his authority over a demonically possessed human. And I thought it was interesting that there are seven such people, record, seven specifically recorded people, Jesus cast demons out of in the scripture. Isn't that interesting? Again, it's seven. Now, of course, he cast demons out of many people, but there are only seven specifically recorded instances of that in the scripture. And I checked that out, and it's true. And why do you think it would be seven? To show that he had absolute, complete, Authority, perfect authority over Satan and his realm. <clears throat> now, to be possessed by an evil spirit or demonized is to be under the direct control of one or more demonic spirits. The de demons were originally what? I think I said it already this morning. They were originally holy angels. Of course, they're created beings, they're spirit beings. They were created by the Lord God, but they were originally holy angels, but they chose to rebel against God along with their leader, Lucifer. <clears throat> and consequently, they fell with him, and likewise, they will be, they'll fall even further. They fell out of heaven, and now they, are the, uh, they have access to the atmospheric heavens above this earth and also to this earth. One day, they will fall even further because they were, will be 
eternally punished along with Satan and be cast eternally into the lake of fire. And you can read about their fall in such passages as Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and Revelation 12.4. I think I have those in your notes. Now, the word demon in the Greek is daemon, daemon, actually, and it is found 75 times in the New Testament. So if somebody scoffs at the fact that there's really such a thing as demons, they'd have to really just throw away the New Testament because the word is mentioned 75 times. Uh, other names besides those 75 times were, and in it, by the way, in the King James Version, we read of it as devil. When you see devils, it's really the word daemon, um, demon. I always think of the devil, singular, as Satan, and then the demons as demons. Other names for them are the devil's angels, angels which kept not their first estate, familiar spirits, unclean spirits, evil spirits, seducing spirits, and wicked spirits. Now, a demon, or demons, plural, can take up residence within a person and gain various levels of control over that person when that person participates in activities and practices which are ungodly, biblically forbidden, and or occultic. And such things would include, of course, an open worshiping of Satan. Are there people who openly worship Satan? Yes, it's really a a religion, it's a cultic, which is growing leaps and bounds across the face of this world today. And it will really take off during the time of the tribulation, won't it? But it's amazing how many people openly worship Lucifer. Also, if they participate in witchcraft, black or white, I don't care, it's all demonic, uh, wizardry, idol worship, or idol possession, communicating with the dead through a medium, a person who's called a medium or a channeler, perhaps in a seance kind of a setting. And the people are not really communicating with the dead. They are communicating with demons who are impersonating the dead. If you, do, if you indulge in that kind of uh, situation, you are opening yourself wide, you're opening yourself wide open <laughs> for demonic possession. Um, People who engage in um, hallucin or take hallucinogenic drugs, doing exactly the same thing, or indulging in that heavy metal rock music, right out of the pit of hell, or conferring, as you see in this picture, with fortune tellers, and horoscopes, and astrology, and w using Ouija boards and tarot cards, and playing such games, which are now just, I guess really prevalent on the internet. Um, I don't even know the names of them because I'm pretty sheltered and I don't want to even know, but I know there used to be games like Dungeons and Dragons and I, now I guess they have all their counterparts on the internet. You really need to know what your young people are doing and protect your children. Um, but those I remember uh, a couple that we knew who had just come to know the Lord. They were brand new Christians. And they were having a terrible time with their son. And uh, 
one day they came and visited with us to have lunch, and the son brought with him all these Dungeons and Dragon games and stuff. And, and we said, we know why you're having problems with your son. And once they took that away from him, they didn't have problems with their son anymore. Uh, also, let's see, where else was he? Dungeons and Dragons, practicing pagan religions uh, and engaging in such things as transcendental meditation and yoga, which are both from Hinduism, where they teach you to look within, you know, to find the God within you and to, and to repeat a mantra over and over again. You're opening yourself up to demonic possession. Now, demons can attack people spiritually, of course, <laughs> physically, they can affect their, their, their bodies, uh, mentally, emotionally, every, every way you can imagine. Now, in the spiritual realm, of course, they, they um, possess, a person who is possessed is lost. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, they're spiritually doomed for eternity separated from God. But they also influence and promote false religions and, of course, the occult. Any person who is possessed by a demon is desperately in need of release from that demon, so, and, and they're desperately in need of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The great physician, not just spiritually, but physically. They're in need of the power of the gospel message. They need to hear it. They need to be saved. They need to be released from their possession. Now, no truly saved, born-again person can be possessed by a demon, because he or she is already possessed by God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit will not dwell in the same temple. Remember, our bodies are a temple of God. God the Holy Spirit will not dwell in the same house with an unclean spirit. So if you're truly born again, you do not need to fear being possessed by a demon. However, believers can be oppressed, not possessed, but oppressed externally by demons from the outside, which in turn can affect them in all other realms of life. So believers must also be very careful not to dabble in any satanically inspired activities. This kind of disobedience is dangerous, and I hope nobody knows that, man. Actually, it was amazing because one of the ladies in Bible study yesterday knew that knew who he is. He's a friend of ours, and he lives in Fayetteville. And if you recognize him, he has, he's Jewish. He has one blue eye and one green eye. He's, uh, he's a real character. But I just thought in that picture, he looked demonically possessed. <laughs> but uh, my husband witnessed to him for years and years and years, and praise the Lord, he is saved. He had finally got saved. He's the one who called me one time. Remember, I've told you this story at 2 o'clock in the morning and said, who did Cain marry? <laughs> That's him. <laughs> don't, if you ever meet him, don't tell you, him that I used his picture <laughs> to show a demonically possessed person. But he is, he's growing in the Lord. I'm very happy to report that. All right. So, but anyway, um, let's see. We can not only, it can lead us, if we dabble in things that we shouldn't, it can lead us to a loss of the joy of our salvation and also to all kinds of related miseries. It's just not a good thing to do. As a matter of fact, the chastening hand of God on our lives could be very, very severe if we dabble in any of these forbidden areas 
For example, what did the Lord have to do with Saul, King Saul, when he went to consult with the witch of Endor? He took his life, you know. So God will, um, he might even chasten us to the point to protect his own testimony. He might even take our lives. We would not lose our salvation, but he might take our lives if, if he can't get our attention to get away from these kind of activities. Now, demons can make a person emotionally and mentally very sick, very sick. I would say that many of people, many people in our mental institutions are there because of demonic possession or oppression. Um, Demons can lead a person to all kinds of strange behavior, including insanity. That's in Matthew 8.28, including masochism. You know what masochism is? When someone tries to harm themselves, such as the young boy who was demonically possessed in Mark 5.5, throwing himself into the fire. And even, of course, suicide. Satan and his demonic realm wants, especially our young people, to take their own lives because then they are eternally doomed and God can't have their soul. And tragically, suicide has been the end result of many, many young people who have saturated their minds, their hearts, their ears with this hard rock music, which I absolutely abhor, hate with a passion, because it is so satanic. In fact, many of the words of these songs, which I don't know how they can even understand them, but amazingly they can. The young people know exactly what the words are. I have listened to some of them, and it's horrifying how they um, promote the worship of Lucifer, how they promote all kinds of crimes of violence and uh, uh, all kinds of sexual perversions, and, of course, take your life. Take your life. You can hear that, you know, when you play them slow. They want them to take their lives, and these young people just get so saturated this and so possessed with this evil that they do it. We've had several young people who, in our bus ministry from our church, have have taken their own lives. And I know you have up here in Sanford, and it's just horrible. Please protect your homes. Get this kind of stuff, this garbage, out of your homes. Even get this, what they call, Christian rock out of your homes. Jesus Christ, I don't care what the words to those songs are, Jesus Christ would not unequally yoke himself together with the world's kind of music. Beware of what your young people are listening to. Now, the physical realm of the possessed individual is affected by a, in a wide variety of ways. Uh, We read of demonized people in the scripture who who were mute. They could not speak. We read of those who were blind, deaf, paralyzed, and pining away or withering away, as it's called in the scripture. We read of those who were epileptic, having seizures. We read of, uh, as we said before, those who were masochistic because of their possession. But once the demons were exercised, were cast out by the Lord Jesus, what happened to these people physically? They could see again, they could hear again, they could speak again, they weren't paralyzed anymore, they didn't have any more seizures. So once they were, uh, the demon was removed, their physical ailments were healed. Now, if you want to um, get an idea of what 
demons, you know, they can disguise themselves, of course, as angels of light. But if you want to get an idea of what they might look like in the end times when all pretense is taken away and they just come out in full force, I would encourage you to read, if you're ready for it, read Revelation 9, a description of some demons that come out of the bottomless pit. It's horrifying. Demon possession was a very common problem in the New Testament days. Now, it is really a very common problem today. It really, really is. We are just so sheltered here in the United States because people label it something else. But you go to some of these third world countries, and those people know. That's why, like when my son was a missionary in Burma, which is called Myanmar, demonic possession is is very well known, recognized, and understood over in a country like that. And uh, that's why they are always putting out food and, and, and trying to appease the spirits, the evil spirits, because they, they believe them. We just, you know, people in this country say, ah, there's no such thing. Anyway, it was very common in the New Testament times, especially during the time of Christ when he was here on earth. Satan apparently increased his evil efforts in order to counter the great work of God that God was doing, you know, through his son, sending his son to earth. Whenever the Lord God is doing a great work on earth, and there was none greater than when he sent his son here to die to redeem mankind. Whenever God is doing a great work, Satan will do, an, uh, you know, he will do his very best to counter God's work with a more concentrated opposition. So that's why we find during the time of Christ so many people who had the problem of demon possession. Now, demons, as we said, are spirit beings, and therefore, because they don't have a body, they crave to uh, they crave a body to inhabit. So, demon possession involves one or more demons taking up residence in a human, or even in animals. Remember the time that the Lord healed the demoniac of Gadara, and He sent the demons into what a, a herd of swine. And those, those pigs had more intelligence than a lot of people because they couldn't stand being possessed by the demons, and so they just jumped off a cliff and went down and, and, uh, into the Sea of Galilee. This is the crude, rude dude in the nude. That's the demoniac of Gadara. Are, are you impressed with how many pictures of demon possessed people I have? Just like with the fishing. I could start going through my files, and I thought, man, I have a lot of weird-looking people in my... Uh, Mary Magdalene, remember? She was possessed before the Lord exercised the demons from her. She was possessed by how many? Demons. Seven. I can't even imagine being possessed by one, much less seven. And then this fella, the demoniac of Gadara, he was possessed by many demons. In fact, some Bible commentators say it could be, and I just can't imagine this, but could be as many as 6,000 because... They said their name was Legion. And in the Roman army, a legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers. So, I don't know. Whew. The demons uh, take possession of much of the faculties of an individual's personality. And they battle for the voice box. Actually, a nurse in Moore County um, First Health, Moore County Regional Hospital, my hospital, which is only a few minutes from my home, she was telling me yesterday, she's in our Bible study, she was telling me about a very prominent man who is now deceased, but he was definitely, definitely, he lives in, lived in Southern Pines, demon-possessed. She took care of him, 
and saw it firsthand. And she said he was uh, had tubes going down his throat and everything and could not speak. He couldn't speak, the man. But when she would walk into his room, this horrible, guttural, low voice would come out of him and say, Phyllis, like that. And then she went on to tell us all kinds of other stories and what <laughs> what was uh, <laughs> in his home. I mean, they actually had a whole room in his home with, you know, crystals hanging everywhere and a seance table. Now, my mother had actually been to a seance when she was a young girl before she ever became a Christian. And she said that everybody around that table had their hands on the top of the table, and she said it literally, the table, rose up into the air. And I have met a a demon-possessed person before, and I don't know, some of you may come to me and tell me your stories, but this we're talking reality here, all right? They take possession of the voice box as well as the actions and much of the thinking of their victim. Now, the man in the Capernaum synagogue was possessed by just one evil spirit. And, of course, that's one too many, but he had just one. And we know this because in Mark 1.26, it says he came out of him. His case here actually shows to us the dual nature of demonic possession. The demon himself, we should realize, the demon himself would never, ever have been in the synagogue, especially on a day when he knew that Jesus would be present. So it was obvious that it was the man himself, under, of course, the divine sovereignty of God, who orchestrated this whole situation so that the demon-possessed man would be in the synagogue that very day. God, of course, he orchestrated this. But it was the man himself who was doing battle with the demon within him to get himself into Christ's presence. The demon didn't want to be there. But the man did, so that we see a dual nature within the man here. They, they would come across as being schizophrenic-type people. Okay? Um, the demon knew who Christ was, and he rightly feared him. So that would be the last place he'd ever want to be is in the synagogue when Jesus was there. The demon, however, did use the plural personal pronouns we and us. You see that in verse 24 when he was speaking? He said, we and us. And that's because he was speaking to Jesus on behalf of all demons. He knew, you see, what all demons and Satan himself know, and that is that Christ is coming one day to destroy them. They all know that. They they obviously know how to read, and so they have read the end of the book, and they know that Christ is coming to destroy them. And uh, he knew that one day this Holy One of God, which is how he referred to Jesus, was coming to reign over this earth as divine judge. That, of course, will be during the time of the millennial kingdom, when Satan and all the demons will be bound for 1,000 years. And he also knew that um, one day they would be permanently um, cast into the eternal lake of fire, which will happen following the millennial kingdom. They're going to be loosed, for a brief period of time, but Christ will destroy them, and then they will be eternally cast into the lake of fire. Now, this particular demon didn't quite have the whole prophetic program laid out. He didn't understand about first coming, second coming, that sort of thing. And so he was concerned that Christ had come at that point in time, this first coming of his, to execute that judgment upon all Satan and all of his demonic realm. And that is why he, he was um, 
fearful when he says in um, verse 24, Art thou come to destroy us? He was fearful that Jesus at that point in time was going to cast them into the eternal lake of fire. But anyway, the reason that he refers to the plural pronoun we and us is because he's speaking on behalf of of all the demons. Now, it's ironic, I thought, to think that demons know who Christ is while knew who Christ was, while the religious rulers of Israel didn't have a clue who he was. The demons knew. I mean, they're right on, aren't they, when they say you're Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. And later on in our lesson, when we get over to Matthew chapter 8 for just a second, we'll see again they recognize who he is. Uh, They know who he is, but the religious rulers who should have known who he was because he told them who he was, they... They didn't know. Now, why is it that the demons would know who Jesus is? Why would they know who Jesus was? Well, they had been with him, right, in eternity past. He was their creator, and they had actually dwelt with him in eternity past. They once constituted one-third of the whole entire angelic host. So one-third of all the angels ever created decided to rebel with Lucifer and fall with him. They fell with him. When they rebelled with him, they fell with him. And you can read about that in Revelation 12:4. So they knew who he was. They knew his voice. They knew his person. Now, the demon's acknowledgement of Christ's identity clearly proves to us, think about this, it very clearly proves to us that a mere knowledge, you know, a head knowledge, and a mere acceptance of the facts about Jesus Christ are not enough for true salvation. Mere belief in the facts of Christ only puts a person on the same level as the demons. Because they believe that Jesus is the Christ, they even call him the Holy One of God. They know exactly who he is. And yet, are they saved? Not hardly. And by the way, if anybody wants to come to me later on and ask me this question, do they get a second chance, let me just tell you right now, no. They made their choice. Jesus Christ will never become an angel in order to redeem the angels. They made their choice, and they will live with it throughout all of eternity. They do not get a second chance. They... um, Even, you know, one day when it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, every demon and Satan himself will one day bow before the Lord Jesus Christ, but even then they're only doing it because they have to. They are not doing it in their heart because they want to. They will still be rebelling against him throughout all of eternity. Even though the Lord Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven, there are many, many people within Christendom who do not believe in the reality of hell. They make fun of it, they reject it, they say there is no such thing as hell. Why do you think Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven? Because of his love. He, does, he did not create hell for men. He created it for the fallen demons and for, uh, for uh, Lucifer, but not for us. And the reason he speaks more about hell is because he doesn't want, it's not his desire that any man should perish. He doesn't want anyone to go there. But men willingly choose to do so. But the demons know the truth about hell. Oh, they sure do. And they even have more sense than most people who are professing Christians because they even tremble. It tells us in James 2.19, the demons believe and tremble. Just like this demon here. 
he was very fearful of being in the presence of Christ because he said, are you come to destroy us? Is this the time? The first command that the Lord Jesus gave to the demon was to hold his peace which literally means to be muzzled. And the reason for this is that Jesus refuses to accept testimony as to his person from demons. A testimony from the kingdom of darkness would cast suspicion on him. You know, people might think that he was in league with them if, if, he, if they were giving testimony. Of course, they did, but he, he wanted them to be muzzled and hush up because he didn't want anyone except someone with a true, uh, pure heart, one who really had submitted to him, like John the Baptist or his disciples or Anna, Simeon, those kind of people, to get, or us, to give testimony of him. But he didn't want any testimony coming from the kingdom of darkness. I mean, the religious rulers concluded that he was in league with them anyway, didn't they? The end, they said, oh, your power comes from, from Beelzebub. Um, also, they are known, Satan and his followers are known as being... Liars. Satan is the father of murderers and liars. And truth is never enhanced when it comes from the mouth of liars. So he refused to accept their testimony. And then the second thing he did, praise the Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, great physician. What an illustration on our lesson. Yes. All right. Um, the second command that he issued to the demon, was for him to come out of the body of the man that he had possessed. It says that he rebuked him. He rebuked evil, which is exactly what you and I are to do. I guess I'll save that a minute. We're not to, we're not to tolerate evil. We're not to compromise with evil. We're to rebuke it, just like the Lord did. That's why I said, get those awful things out of your house if you have them there. Have a, a bonfire and burn it all. We did. Years ago, we did that. After we first became Christians, we took toys and books and some things that we had had that we had accumulated, and we had a little bonfire. It was wonderful. Um, as soon as the Lord's command was issued, Luke the physician, now that's why I read that one verse over in Luke to you, he would be interested in this sort of thing because he was a physician. He tells us that the demon threw the man down in the midst of the synagogue, but Luke quickly tells us that the man wasn't hurt. He wanted us to know that. You see, the demon knew his limitations before the Lord Jesus Christ. So he threw the man down, but he didn't hurt him. Now, the action of being thrown down would have appeared like the man was having some sort of a convulsion. A again, this is a demonstration of the dual nature of possession. The man would obviously not have hurled himself down on the ground. It was the demon within the man him down. And that's exactly what the scripture says over in Luke 4.35. He, you see, the demon was uh, kind of like having a tantrum, wasn't he? He was, <laughs> he was fiercely demonstrating his anger because he did not want to obey the Lord's command, but he was totally unable to disobey. Christ is supremely authoritative over all the evil forces, and the demon had absolutely no choice whatsoever than to submit himself to the Lord's command. Now, after his little tantrum, it says that he did come out of the man, and in doing so, we're told that he cried out with a loud voice. You see that in verse 26. Now, the, this is interesting, okay? The Greek word for cried 
out, cried, refers to a scream or a shriek. And the Greek, the two Greek words for loud voice give us in the English the word megaphone. So a loud scream or a shriek and as if using a megaphone. What does that remind you of? It reminds me of this heavy metal rock music that they play so extremely loud. I don't, I mean, it's amazing, and I guess it does affect their hearing. I'm amazed it doesn't blow out the eardrums. What is it doing to the brains of these young people? When we were in Chile, we took a tour one day to Viña del Mar. I think it was a resort town on the beach. The tour guide took us to this big amphitheater. I mean, that thing was huge. And it's where they had rock, uh, these heavy rock uh, groups that would come in and play. And it was outdoors. The whole, whole thing was outdoors. I'm telling you, I have never, we didn't, my husband and I did not go into the amphitheater with the rest of the group. We took a step, we just went our own little way because there was a group practicing. There was nobody there that day except tourists, but there was a group practicing. And the decibels coming out of that, they had speakers that were probably almost as tall as this church. I could not believe the size of those speakers. But the, the noise was how anybody could hear that and not think satanic, satanic, satanic is just absolutely beyond me. I did a little study this week, and I went through the scripture. All the demons that were ever exercised out of someone are always crying out, and it's always a scream or a shriek in the Greek, and it's always loud voices, always megaphone. You know, God in Proverbs says it's a soft voice that's godly, and i got to work on this because <laughs> I'm known for being pretty loud. I think it comes from being Greek. You know, my ancestors had a call from one hill over to the other. You know, to <laughs> that's a good excuse. Anyway, um, but it's interesting. They were always loud, always loud. All right, the miracle instantly affected all those who were in the synagogue, and they began to say among themselves, what thing is this? You know, we've never seen anything like this. With authority, he even commands the unclean spirits, and they have to obey him. See, the Jews of first century Israel were very accustomed, as I said earlier, to seeing demonic possession, unlike the skeptics of, uh, of our day, especially here in America. They knew that it was a very frightening reality of life with which to deal. And although there were, there were uh, various religious Jews who would go around trying to exercise people, you know, exercise demons out of people, they would use lengthy incantations. You know, if you did ever see that movie, The Exorcist, they do all kinds of little, they say little things, and, and they have formulas and all kinds of rituals. But even then, they very seldom met with success. On one occasion, even the Lord's disciples attempted by themselves, with, apart from having great faith and fasting and prayer, they, they found out how difficult it was to um, cast out demons. That's in Matthew 17. And so did the seven sons of Siva. Remember those seven brothers went into a home to cast out demons from a man? And they wound up, all seven brothers, running out of that house naked, not the man possessed, but them. They ran out naked, wounded, humiliated, and very, very frightened. Take, don't, don't try to get yourself involved in exercising a demon out of somebody. It is a very dangerous thing to do. It takes 
great prayer, fasting, a lot of faith, and don't ever attempt to do it without help, spiritual help. So when the people of Capernaum, you see, saw that Jesus merely spoke the words come out of him. That's all he had to say. He didn't even have to say that, did he? We saw that with the fish. He could have just thought it. But when he said those words without any rituals, formulas, or incantations, or any preliminary work of any kind, when they saw the instant obedience of the demon, and they saw that not because they saw the demon leave because the demon was a spirit being they couldn't see him leave but they got had evidence that he left by the fact that the man was thrown down and then he um, i'm sure got up and was just totally in his right mind and everything and so when they saw this they were overwhelmed with amazement well the logical conclusion of all of this should have been for the people to truly listen and then obediently obey every word that the lord spoke and some of them did However, the majority of them got more excited about his miracles than they did about his message. But regardless of whether the people were moved to faith in Christ himself or to mere amazement over his power, it says that everyone began to talk about him so much so that his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. Now, I've only got about seven minutes, so let's quickly try to look at his authority. This is part two of our lesson, his authority over physical sickness. And uh, for this, we'll read, we'll stay in Mark, just to make it easy. And let's look at verses 29 to 34. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon which is the word immediately. Remember, one of Mark's favorite words is immediately or straight away, or anon. Anon is the King James Version of immediately. It says, and anon, they tell him of her. Verse 31, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. Okay, when Jesus left the synagogue, probably... um, not probably, but that morning. This is why this was such a busy day, and this isn't ended yet. But when he well, left the synagogue, he was attended by Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he went to Peter and Andrew's home. Now, that's interesting because we found out that Peter and Andrew were from Bethsaida. What are they doing having a home? What is, why does Peter have a home in Capernaum? I don't know. Obviously, somewhere along the line, he moved to Capernaum, but he was originally from Bethsaida. Maybe when he got married, maybe his wife was from Capernaum. Or maybe when he knew that Jesus was going to have his headquarters in Capernaum, they moved there. I don't know, but they were all one big happy family, Peter and his wife and his mother-in-law and his brother. It, it looks like Andrew was not married, but maybe Andrew's wife lived there too. But I, would, I think Andrew probably wasn't married. Anyway, they were all living together. And so after the synagogue service is over and he cast out the demon from the man, they go back to Peter's house. Peter probably said, come on, everybody, let's go over to my house because my mother-in-law is a great cook. Or maybe his wife was a great cook. So they're going to go have Sabbath dinner at Peter's house. However, when they arrived, they discovered that Peter's mother-in-law lay sick of a fever. Now, this is the first of five recorded miracles which Christ performed for women. Now, I was kind of surprised that there were only five women, specifically recorded women, that Jesus healed. And she's the first of five. Also, this is the fifth miracle in our life of Christ's study. And I thought it was interesting that five is the number of grace, and he, he showed this grace on women, which is wonderful. But also it was interesting because I discovered there are 20 specifically recorded miracles of Jesus healing men. So what does that show us, lady, ladies? 
<laughs> we are healthier than men, right? <laughs> Actually, it shows us that they need more help than <laughs> 20 men and only five women. All right. Anyhow, from this account, we find that Peter was married, don't we? Yes, no doubt about it. Peter had a wife. And um, uh, at, on occasion, she even traveled with him. We find that out in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Peter had a wife who traveled. Now, I hope I didn't give you the wrong idea last week, and I may have, when I said that the Lord expected total abandonment of his disciples, his apostles, you know, from everything. If they had a wife, he wasn't expecting them to just put aside the wife and forget about her forever. Those wives, like Peter's wife, some would travel sometimes with the disciples. You know, when the, the Lord traveled, he had a big group of disciples originally, and um, it dwindled down. But among them were such women as uh, Susanna and uh, Mary Magdalene and Peter's wife. So I think most of the disciples did not have wives, but Peter did. And we know this because he had a mother-in-law. You can't have a mother-in-law unless you have a wife. Now, it is puzzling why Roman Catholicism, which claims Peter as the first pope, which is erroneous, but they do claim Peter as their first pope, why they then say that popes cannot be married and priests. I, I don't understand that because Peter was definitely married. Now, in response to the family's request to attend to the sick woman, the Lord Jesus, we are told, did several things and these are interesting first of all and some of them are over in Luke's account but he first of all it says in Luke 439 that he stood over her you don't see that in Mark but he stood over her then it says in Mark he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and then over in Luke it says he rebuked the fever now if we look into those specific actions of the Lord it's very meaningful because first of all in standing over her he was taking up the position of a physician and it's interesting that Luke is the one that tells us he stood over her. And he is, is he not? He is the great physician. He stood over the sick woman. And he, um, that also indicates his position not only as a great physician, but it indicates his position in another way, because he stands over all of us preeminently. If we want to gain the help that he offers, we must allow him to stand over us, because he is over us, is he not? He is the head over all of us. He is to be esteemed as higher than we are. So he stood over her, and then he took her by the hand. And in a number of his miracles, even though he did not have to, in a number of his miracles we find that he did make physical contact with those he was healing. For example, and a lot of the times he would reach out and touch the untouchables. He would reach out and touch something that other people wouldn't ever touch. He would he touched, for example, um, the leper. He touched the eyes of blind men. Now, you don't want to go around touching the eyes of blind people. He touched the tongue of a, a deaf man. It says that he, uh, he touched the coffin of the dead son of the widow of Nain. People didn't touch things like that. And he also touched the ear of Malchus after who cut it off? <laughs> after Peter cut his ear off, he touched it and made it just instantly grow back. Although none of us deserve the healing touch of God, yet his divine grace provided it through sending us his son who willingly and lovingly reached out to touch us, you know, with his love and forgiveness and with his spiritual healing. And then it says he, after he um, stood over her, 
and reached out and took her hand, touched her. Then what did he do? He lifted her up. The touch of Jesus always uplifts man. It is sin which lowers him. It is sin which takes man into the pit of despair and destruction and eternal doom. With Jesus, everything is always up. With sin and Satan, everything is always down. But when the individual allows Christ to take his hand, he will never, ever, ever let us down. He will always lift us up. And then the fourth thing he did, and this is really interesting, he rebuked the fever. And the interesting part about this is that the Greek word, which is used for rebuke. Now, this is over in Luke 4.39. Luke 4.39. The word for rebuke is identical to the word used in Luke 4.35 and Mark 1.25, the account that we just looked at, when he rebuked the demon within that man in the Capernaum synagogue. It's the same exact word. It's also the same word which is used over in Luke 8.24 when uh, Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves of a terrible storm which suddenly came upon the Sea of Galilee and they were all out there in in a boat. And when we get to that story, we'll find out that that was a satanically inspired storm. So in each of these cases, the word indicates a strong admonition against evil. It's an admonishment of evil. And so the implication in this text is that Peter's mother-in-law had gotten sick due to a demonic influence. Not that the woman wasn't a godly woman. I am sure she probably was because instantly when she healed, she wanted to minister and serve the Lord. But I would speculate that there was an evil origin to her sudden sickness. You know, they obviously had left her presence that morning to go to the synagogue. And she must have been fine, or maybe she woke up with a headache or something. I don't know, but apparently she didn't go with them to synagogue. But they were shocked when they got home, and she had a great fe- I mean, her fever was comparable to the nobleman's son. In the Greek, it tells us that. It was a, it was a life-threatening fever. And so they were surprised. You know, here she's, what had he just done? He had just rebuked a demon. The demon had to leave. My guess on this was that the demon, in revenge, went and attacked Peter's mother-in-law, who was not at the synagogue, who was at home for some reason. And and she got very sick in a hurry. So that's just something to, uh, to think about there. Well, as instantly as the demon had to depart from the Capernaum demoniac, so when the Lord rebuked the fever from this woman, it was instantly gone. You know, there was no extended period of recovery, which is very common when someone has a very high fever like this. It was just instantly gone. So you see, in just one morning, the Lord Jesus had demonstrated his supreme authority over both the spiritual and physical realms of life. He demonstrated his authority over both demons and disease. And we indirectly learn here that not only was Peter's wife's mother delivered from the dangerous fever, but she also instantly received an infusion of energy and strength. And we know this because what did she do as soon as she was healed? And she really serves us as a great example here because she immediately began to minister to the Lord and to his men. And the Greek verb ministered is given in the continuous sense, which is interesting because it means that she didn't just serve them once. What do you think she probably did? 
I think she probably fixed them dinner. Yeah, Sunday dinner, Saturday dinner. <laughs> uh, but she, it indicates she didn't just do one ministering service. She continually served them for as long as they were in her home. And not only did she perform the act for Jesus, but she did it for his disciples as well. So she serves us as an example. She was faithful to serve them um, as long as, as, as they were in her presence. She didn't use her recent sickness, as some of us might have wanted to do, you know, as an excuse not to serve. Oh, good, this is one day I don't have to cook the dinner and wash the dishes. She, she didn't use it as an excuse to be slack or to let someone else do the serving. She wanted to immediately and continuously give back to the one who had healed her. So you know, she wanted to show her appreciation. And isn't that exactly what you and I should do after Jesus lifted us up out of the miry clay and set our feet upon a rock and put a new song in our heart? What should we instantly want to do, just like Peter's mother-in-law? Rise up and minister to him and to our fellow man. And not just do it once, but continuously minister to him. Well, this, uh, this woman was a great woman, and no wonder Peter was a great guy. He had a great mother-in-law. Well, it didn't take long for word about these two Sabbath miracles to spread like wildfire among the local citizens. I mean, everybody. You know, when he, when he had just initially healed a nobleman's son, a lot of people in Capernaum might have said, well, that was just a coincidence that the son got well at the same time Jesus was talking to the father. But now they'd had three more miracles. They had, they'd probably heard about the great catch of fish. They had, many of them had witnessed the demon being cast out of the man in the synagogue that morning, and now they would hear about Peter's mother-in-law. So you know what they did as soon as the sun set? Sabbath was from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And we are told... I don't think I read that, but you'll have to read it on your own at home. We are told um, in Luke, well, here it is. It says in Luke 4:40, when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And devils also came out of many, crying out. Again, it's that same loud shrieking noise and saying, thou art Christ, the son of God. So many, you know, as soon as the sun set, all the people started coming out of their homes and they went to Peter's house. I'm sure there wasn't enough room in there. By the way, Peter's house is where they lowered the man through the roof because it was so full of people. This is later on. But um, that night, everybody, you know, they said, this man can really heal people spiritually and physically. So they're bringing all their demon-possessed friends and they were bringing all their sick friends and themselves if they were sick. And what does it say he did? Healed Every single one of them, not one sick person by way of either demon or disease went away from the Lord Jesus Christ without having been healed. No one was disappointed. No problem was beyond his power to correct. And notice he had time for all, even though this had been a busy day for him. He started out teaching in the synagogue, casting out a demon of a man, in a man. Then going home and, and healing Peter's mother-in-law. And now all these people. But he never gave the excuse that it's just getting too late. Why don't you bring some of these people back tomorrow? He healed every one of them. No one who came to Jesus was disillusioned. And no one left not rejoicing. Everyone, all left rejoicing. Except the demons. <laughs> so again, it's worth mentioning um, that the demons did acknowledge who Jesus was. 
they did exact they knew exactly who he was when they said that christ the son of god but they pulled up short notice they didn't say that art our christ you are my christ they just said thou art christ and again he told he it says he rebuked them you don't see this it's over in luke and we i didn't have you go over there but he rebuked them and he commanded them to be muzzled, just as he had earlier that day, he did not want to receive the testimony from anyone except someone with a pure, clean, and godly uh, heart, a, a pure testimony. He will not receive testimony from anyone else. All right, and then just in conclusion, Matthew 8 tells us, whoops, I had the right one up there. Matthew 8 tells us that all of this was fulfillment of Isaiah 53:4, And so that is our 15th prophetic fulfillment in our life of Christ study that the Messiah, when he would come, Isaiah predicted, he would um, heal our infirmities and he would carry our, our sorrows and he would bear our griefs. And so Matthew says this is, again, proof of who Jesus is as Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed the great physician, as we have so wondrously seen illustrated right before our very eyes in healing our dear, sweet Catherine. Thank you, God. Thank you for that so much. And on a more significant level than the two healings which we have looked at in this study this morning, the healing of the demoniac and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, on a more significant level, neither does the Lord Jesus turn away anyone who comes to him with his or her spiritual problem of sin. Because the Lord did indeed bear our griefs and carry our sorrows when he willingly died in our place for our sin upon the cross of Calvary. Because of that, we can be healed spiritually. We can be forgiven and we can be cleansed of sin and we can be imputed with his glorious righteousness. We can also be freed from the terror of death. For we receive eternal life when we put our faith in his substitutionary death on our behalf. And then, Lord, I would pray that we would be just like Peter's mother-in-law when he has reached out, taken our hand, and lifted us up, that we would arise and we would continuously serve him with every gift and every talent and every ability and our time and our money and everything that we have. We would serve him till the day you call us to be home with you. For we pray in the blessed, wonderful name of our great physician, Jesus Christ. Amen.